Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to Luke chapter 24, and let's read verses 44 to 49, although the message will especially focus on verse 48. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father unto you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Again, focusing those words, ye are witnesses of these things. The physician Luke, who wrote this great history took great care to record many things about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us greater detail than any other about the background concerning uh, his mother Mary and the conception of that virgin through the inspiration of the Spirit. It holds forth some of the miracles and uh, parables which other gospel accounts do not include. And the overall picture has been well described as one that holds forth the beauty and the tenderness of this person of Jesus Christ in remarkable ways. And of course, this history is but the first volume of what Luke intends to write, the Gospel of Acts, also written by him. And there you see how he carries forward the ministry of this glorious person, Jesus Christ, after his ascension into heaven, through the ministry of his church, through his Holy Spirit, and the preaching of the gospel. What is striking is that the close of his first book and the beginning of his second book both take great care to note that Jesus spoke of his disciples as his witnesses. Verse 48, ye are my witnesses of these things. Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come unto you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. It is this uh, title of witness, which I especially want to direct your attention to. The word is in the Greek, martus, and it's the word from which we get martyr, martyr. I think that as we unfold, what is a true witness of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
we come to see something of the high and the excellent calling of every Christian, not only those first apostles for whom this particularly concerned. As we live in days in which the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything of his person and work is despised and hated increasingly. It is this title that I think most accurately describes our calling to remain faithful unto the word of Christ in the midst of a hostile and perverse generation. With the Lord's help, I'd like to unfold this, Christ's Witnesses. And considering in particular, um, in the first place, the meaning of this word. Second, we'll look at something of its centrality to the identity of the Christian. And third, we should look at the source of true witness bearing. So, in the first place, the meaning of this word. Second, the centrality to the Christian's identity. And third, the source of true witness bearing. What is the meaning of this word witness? Well, children, uh, maybe you've sometimes uh, seen uh, a video or recording of a courtroom. And you know that in a courtroom, there is a judge and the judge is listening to arguments from who? Well, from these lawyers that are representing Different people. Maybe one lawyer is representing someone who is accused of a crime. And so the other one might be representing the crown or the prosecution. And, and all the evidence is being put forward before the judge in order to determine that true justice is going to be done. Remember, there was one occasion where. I had to testify uh, against a person who was later convicted of uh, voter suppression. And um, as, it, as it turned out, I had to give a testimony to uh, what I, I knew of this man's guilt. And even here in Canada, which often does not fear God, the, uh, the court invited me to put my hand upon the Bible and to solemnly swear that everything that I said was true and accurate. And that is the first place that we need to go to understand this term of a witness. When we think about the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. Yes, that is setting forth an important principle of truth in all of life. But the first instance, it's referring to a precise calling that someone has in order to provide evidence in the context of a, of a trial or a court. And you see this not only in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, but also in other portions of the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, at the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death, be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness shall not be put to death. And then Numbers 35, verse 30, Whoso killeth any person, the murderer, shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. By one witness shall not test, 
but one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. You see, the law of God is concerned with justice in every respect, between image bearers of God and throughout all of the nation of Israel. There was to be justice in this matter of court proceedings by not just one form of evidence, by at least two, rather. Everything was to be established, particularly as it concerns matters of uh, punishing murderers. And what you see is that not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New, even the Lord Jesus himself spoke of this principle, that where it concerns matters of sin and within the context of the church in particular, that everything was to be established by two witnesses in order to be confirmed to be true. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, this is what it says about resolving disputes between Christians. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more than the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word may be established. And if he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. And so in this important matter of church discipline, you see how important it is that we go individually to the person that as we believe a sin against us. And if that doesn't work, we bring in these two witnesses. Why is that important? Well, if, if more steps are taken, then it won't just be your word, but multiple people will be able to speak unto the church if, if it turns out that church discipline is needed. So that's the, the first example of it being used. And so the important thing to understand is that in the scriptures... The calling to be a witness arises from knowing something that is true that you cannot keep to yourself. You have truth, not only in conformity to the facts, but also such that you must bring forward. And the duty of a witness is always to speak the truth of what they know. And never to be a false witness, as the Ninth Commandment teaches us. Let me just uh, bring to your attention a number of Proverbs that highlight this again and again, so you see how prominent it is. Proverbs 14, verse 5. A faithful witness will not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. Proverbs 14, verse 25. A true witness delivereth souls but a deceitful witness speaketh lies. Proverbs 24, verse 28. Be not a witness against thy neighbor without cause, and deceive not with thy lips. Proverbs 6, verse 19. A false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Proverbs 12, verse 17. He that speaketh truth showeth forth righteousness, but a false 
witness deceit. So again, you can see how these things would uh, be relevant in any kind of relationship, any kind of community, but especially within a court, within uh, a case where before the state or before the church, you're bringing particular charges against someone or you're speaking to their innocence. That might be a particular case where this principle would be employed. And so that is the first meaning of this. It's a very stable definition. So why is it now the Lord Jesus would be applying this unto his followers as witnesses? Well, I think one further uh, background is, is helpful for understanding, and that would be the prophecy of Isaiah. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43? And I think that this text is significant enough, it's worth looking at in some detail. Uh, Isaiah 43, and we'll begin reading at verse 8. Sometimes this has been called the trial of the false gods because Jehovah God is especially directing these words unto those who are worshiping false gods. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there is no God form, neither shall there be, be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Well, chapter is worth reading in detail. But I think that the important thing to understand is that here what you have is the Lord in the first place rebuking those who are serving false gods, idols. And in the course of doing, he's rebuking the false gods themselves. And so they and all their followers are to receive justice that they may be justified in the sense there is that they are there before his judicial power and a right verdict needs to be rendered whether they are true gods or no. And then he turns and then speaks to another audience and he says, ye, a great number of people, ye, plural, are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye might know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God form, neither shall there be after me. When we speak of being a witness or giving a testimony as a witness, sometimes we can think about it as though uh, basically, we are making the person we're speaking to the judge and we're trying to basically get God or Christ exonerated. So we're giving evidence, we're giving testimony, but really it is the sinner that we're speaking to that is really standing in judgment. 
Not so at all with this text. What is happening here is God, as the judge of all things over all the earth, he is so just and so good that he is going to compel all to assent unto his verdict. That he alone is God. He's going to accomplish this through his Messiah, through his chosen servant, and through all who serve him. And when I read such things, I think that it must be pointing ahead in some sense to that final great day of judgment when all will stand before the great throne of justice and every, everything that's ever been spoken or done will have to be given account for. So I think these are the things to consider. In the first place, we see it in the human realm, witnesses in a court, and now we see that there's a great, grander and a broader principle at work. God is judge of all the earth, and he is going to compel all those who are serving the false gods to recognize that he alone is God. He's going to do this through his chosen servant, the Messiah, our Jesus. And so now we see that the words that Jesus are speaking have a definite meaning and a very clear description in prophecy. It's no wonder that he already said that the prophets as well as the law and the Psalms were all concerning him. And so here he is, and he's saying that as it was written, that it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. So just as a witness who's been summoned before a court doesn't have a choice or an option, it's not just a special thing that they might like to do. No, they are compelled by the force of divine authority to stand for what is right, for stand for what is true. And in particular, this, the chosen ones who are the assigned witnesses preparing this whole world for judgment. They have a special purpose as well. I'd like to transition now to speak in this way. If we are to recognize the full importance of this word, we ought to see its centrality to the Christian's identity. We'll know if I've succeeded after this sermon, if you would leave this building impressed upon this, that if you are a Christian believer, you are a witness. You are a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ before this world, before everyone. That is your calling. That is your sacred duty. And it should be our joyful duty as well. How are we to set forth the centrality of this to the Christian? Well, I think one good way to start would be the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. I want you to listen to how this book begins. You see, John was surely one of those who heard this commission from Christ to be his witness. And this is how he begins his first epistle. 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of 
life. I think maybe he was thinking of that one who said to him, look at my hands and feet, touch my hands and feet. I am no ghost, no phantom. Verse 2, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. To be one who would be a witness for Christ is to speak from personal experience of observing the great salvation that Jesus Christ has brought. As I say, in a special way, it belongs to those first apostles, those who physically touch with their hands this precious word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the word incarnate. But everyone, if they truly have a personal relationship with Christ, if he is more than just someone you've heard about, but you know him personally, you have communed with him, you have sensed something of his presence and blessing on your life, then you must take up this cause with John and with all the apostles that we witness of him Bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father. The Apostle Peter also speaks of this in a particular way. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. There as he's giving these closing exhortations to the churches there in Asia Minor. He says these words in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who also am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So you see that though he was an apostle, what he highlights is that an apostle in the ultimate sense is just another kind of elder as it concerns the calling to shepherd the church of God. So he places himself in a very humble way at the equality of all elders. And the thing that he emphasizes, however, is that he is also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. What is it? What is it the truth that we are to witness? What is it that we are to speak of? Yes, a personal acquaintance with Christ, the fact that we know him, but it must not be at the neglect of this, what Jesus has done, his suffering. That was what the apostle was particularly witness to. He could say, as few could, that there was my Savior and he died for me. He suffered on that cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
And so it is that in Peter's own life and ministry, he comes to this again and again. Having heard this commission to be a witness for Christ, having witnessed to his sufferings, he especially focuses upon this as the crux of his preaching, Jesus Christ crucified and Jesus Christ risen from the dead. In Acts chapter 1, verse 22, as they are seeking a replacement for the apostate Judas, it's Peter who says, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So he emphasizes that, that it has to be someone who has witnessed the resurrected Christ, who is to be an apostle. Then Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Jesus is preaching on that great Pentecost sermon. And this is what he says, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So there, Acts 2, verse 32, Peter is speaking of Psalm 16 and the prophecy it contains of Christ. And it goes on in verse 31. He, that is David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, that is the grave, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up. Wherefore, we all are witnesses. In Acts chapter 3, verse 13, he speaks to another gathering after he has uh, performed a great miracle, giving strength to a lame man. And he says in Acts chapter 3, verse 13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Now, Peter, you see how he's highlighting and foregrounding this, the cross of Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus is. He is the prince of life. This is what has happened to him. You, the Jewish people, have murdered him together with the Romans. And so it is that the central message of a true witness of Christ is about what our Savior has done for us. Sometimes we're at a loss to know how to speak to the unbelieving world. What is that we are to say? Well, what we lift up high as our banner is this, Christ and him crucified. We speak of Christ and what he has done. Yes, to a great many in our world, it is foolishness to speak of a risen Christ. Go to the streets of our city, go to our neighborhoods. You will not see a few people scoffing at the message of the cross. But while it is a savior of death unto death to those who perish, it is a savior of life unto life for them who believe. What else shall we speak of if not the cross of Jesus Christ? 
Yes, there's all sorts of important aspects that need to give shade and context and meaning to that. Why is it that he died? It was not because of his own sins, but the sins of his people. Why is it that God would have his son to die? Well, because the wages of sin is death. What is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. Why does the law matter? Because God is a holy God. And so you go in this direction, in that direction. But it all finds its, full, its context in Christ. There is the justice of God manifested. There is the love of God revealed. There is the message which can slay the heart of man under conviction for sin. This is the message that can draw all men unto unto our blessed Savior, the message of the cross. You do not have to be a great expert Bible professor in order to be a witness for Christ. You don't have to have read all the, all the books. You don't have to know all the right language. What you have to speak of is a crucified Savior. Speak of him as a witness of one who has seen these things personally. Peter speaks similarly in Acts chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom he slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness for sins. And we are his witnesses of those things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Well, maybe you were wondering, why is it that the name witness, which means martyr in the Greek, took on the name of one who has died for his faith? Why do we speak of the blood of the martyrs as the seed of the church? Well, it is because if you are doing the calling of a witness, if you are speaking of Christ, and as Peter did, preaching not only the remission or forgiveness of sins, that you can be reconciled unto God through the blood of Christ and believing in his name, but also repentance, turning away from the ways of sin and lawlessness unto the lordship of Jesus Christ. And indeed, that is a message that will bring hatred from this unbelieving world. Were it a message that did not challenge and convict, were it not a message that condemns the world, that rejects the lordship of Christ, there would be no hostility. There would be not these great histories of the martyrs who were fed to the lions or killed in other grisly ways. There would not be martyrs even right now, witnesses for Christ, suffering in prisons and being killed in various ways on the Lord's day for worshiping the Savior. But so it is to be a witness for Christ is to live with that hostility away uh, from the world against the message of the Savior. It could not be otherwise. 
The, if you would leave the devil alone and leave this world under his clutches, he would not be disturbed. He would not be troubled by us. But the reality is that a church and a Christian and a people that would take seriously the calling to be witnesses, they will be the targets of the devil and of his servants. And his unavoidable Christ, Christian people those who would seek to live faithful will know persecution, whether small or great. I love the account of the Apostle Paul, how it was that he became a witness for the Lord Jesus. There he is. He's standing on trial before King Agrippa for being a Christian, and he gives his testimony there in Acts 20, chapter 26, verse 12. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, he's talking about his life prior to his conversion as a Pharisee. He's on a commission from the high priests in order to lock up the Christians. And he says there in verse 13 of Acts 26, At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you, thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. An incredible thing. There you would think the last person who would be a witness for Christ, a hostile persecutor of the Christians, a hater of the very name of Christ, one who held the coats of those who stoned to death, that great man Stephen who preached as a faithful witness of Christ. Now the Lord Jesus gets a hold of him and he says, I am making you my witness, Saul. No more will you persecute me and my church. No, I've sanctified you as my instrument. You will preach this message. You will turn those who are yet in darkness unto light, under the power of Satan, unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Let me ask you this. If you were to live your whole life long and you were not to see success in all the things you attempt to do, whether in business or in family or in church life or in any kind of thing you set your mind to. But if you would be God's instrument to save one person from hell, if you would be God's instrument to bestow forgiveness of sins as you share and bear testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
And that simple weak act on your part would be used through the Holy Spirit to bring a sinner from death into life. Let me ask you something. Would your life be worthwhile? Whatever other disappointments you may have, a single person brought unto eternal blessedness and glory, would that not be worth it? This world is so insignificant compared to the eternal state. This life is just a vapor and it will soon be passed. All the things that occupy us and keep us up at night and consume our thoughts, they are so small and insignificant compared to the incredible glory that awaits in the new heavens and the new earth. On the other hand, you consider the innumerable souls in hell suffering under the judgment of God And you think, what does it mean for a single soul, even even just one, to be redeemed out of that state of condemnation, to be brought unto the fellowship of the saints of light? I tell you, that is a life worth living. If you would save only one. And not only that, just to save a soul, but to do so to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, who is worthy to receive the reward of his sufferings. This is why it is central, you see. If you don't just have a transactional relationship with Jesus, yes, you're forgiven of your sins. Yes, you are destined for heaven. And that's all I really need from Christ. Well, if, if you say that, then, then you're neglecting this whole deeper dimension to the Christian experience, which is this. Now that he has saved you, he is your prize. He is your everything. He is your Lord and master. And you live in order to glorify and magnify him. And this is how he has purposed to do it, to save souls unto eternal life. And he's made you his witnesses. His witnesses to speak unto a hostile world. You know, I think... That when we uh, transition to this last point, ask the question where this power comes from. Where does true witness bearing come from? I think that we ought to say this in the first place. You want to be a witness for Christ. You desire it. It is your calling. How is it that it begins? Well, it must begin with this. You must spend Much time in secret prayer with your Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's a striking thing that the Lord Jesus is held forth as the greatest of witnesses in the scripture. It said in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. There he is. He's spoken of with those other great titles. The faithful witness. Like none other, the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed his glorious gospel through his perfect life, through his miracles, through his death on the cross. Everything about him was perfect. His message was pure and entire. 
and he sealed it with his precious blood, the blood that was out without blemish or without spot as the Lamb of God shed for the salvation of his church and people. He is the faithful witness. And so he's spoken of in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, as he writes unto the church of the Laodiceans, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. What is it to be a witness? It is to be like Jesus. How do you become like Jesus? You spend time with Jesus. You commune with your Savior. Why is it that there is such weakness in the church of Jesus Christ today? Why is it that so often you and I, we struggle to be faithful in our calling to speak of what we know to be true concerning our Savior before a hostile world? It is because we have not spent the best hours and the lengthiest hours and the greatest of our concentration and energy in secret prayer before the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, after hearing some of the preaching that was taking place, it is said, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were learned and ignorant men, They marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. How is it that these men, unlearned and ignorant, could speak unto our souls? How is it they could speak such convicting words from the scripture? Why is it they're willing to risk everything? Why is it they're willing to be be killed for this one who was crucified? Well, they have been with. Jesus. They have been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus, my friend? Do you know what it is to commune with him? If we would devote all of our energy unto the service of this great Savior, we must know that that cannot come from ourselves. It must come from the secret place. It must come on bended knee. It must come from being with him. Jesus himself spoke of the Holy Spirit as the special source of this power. He said it there right after those words in verse 48, ye are witnesses of these things. He said, and behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. The power of the Holy Spirit received from heaven. It would be that that would give these people the spiritual power to share the gospel. He spoke of that as well in John chapter 15, verse 24. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, They had not had sin, but now they have both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be filled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the comforter is come, 
Speaking of that Holy Spirit, when the Comforter has come, whom I send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. And it's through the strength of the Holy Spirit that we witness. We are with Jesus in our secret communion, in our secret prayers, and we live out of the strength of his Spirit as we share the gospel with others. It's not something that comes from yourself, that can overcome the fear of man, that can overcome the pride of your own heart, that can overcome whatever, whatever other hang-up that would impede you from speaking of your faith. It is the strength of the Holy Spirit, walking with the Spirit, responding with the Spirit, as it leads you in great, as He leads you into greater conformity unto the word and will of Jesus Christ. This is what makes witnesses of Jesus Christ. In that passage which we read from the book of Revelation, a difficult passage as some of the other parts of Revelation are, it nevertheless holds forth the great and excellent power from the Holy Spirit that is used to turn the world upside down. There are the two witnesses in the book of Revelation chapter 3, and they are those who prophesy, it says there. And they do so in sackcloth and mourning for the sins of the world. They represent, you see, the faithful remnant church in the apostate age in which we live. They're described as two olive trees in verse 4. They receive the nourishing strength of the Spirit representing the sap of those trees. They are the candlesticks blazing for the light and truth of the gospel. And the powers they are endued with are of the greatest magnitude. Verse 5, if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. These are pictures taken from the Old Testament, from the ministry of Moses, from the ministry of Elijah. And I think the the proper way to take them is that the incredible power of the gospel in order to bring conviction of sin, in order to bring down judgments upon the unbelieving world, but also salvation unto God's people in the greater exodus as people are brought out of the kingdom of darkness is all of God and is something that the devil cannot stop. Let us never, congregation, depreciate the power of the gospel. Let us not grow hard and complacent. Let us not grow discouraged. We live in great and glorious days. We have a high and holy calling. The Lord Jesus has made you and me as witnesses, dear Christians. Let us live out of the fullness of his grace and power and go forward to the glory of his name. Amen.